So I came home after visiting with clients, and I sorted through the mail. Bills, magazines, junk mail, and you guessed it, direct mail from organizations I care about that do first-rate work. And I think to myself, do people still give through the mail? Or do these organizations just not get the memo that direct mail has gone the way of the T-Rex? This is an area of marketing that has evolved so much just in the last decade with the evolution of fundraising via email. So I figured if I had questions, you would too. So I asked an expert in what is now called integrated marketing to join me today. Lisa Masca is a partner and co-owner at Lautman Masca Nealon Company, a full-service direct response fundraising firm specializing in nonprofits. Their client list is long and impressive. It includes Reading as Fundamental, Gay Men's Health Crisis, and the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. She is a sought-after speaker, an expert, and after listening today, you're going to get why. For those grappling with the question, is direct mail dead and should I bother? Lisa will offer you a clear answer with strategies you can implement. She explains what integrated marketing actually is and why it is absolutely critical to the long-term sustainability of your fundraising. And she will tell you the five things you must have in place in order to be ready to begin a direct mail program. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Lisa, I'm delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Joan. I'm delighted to be here. So, um, this is a topic that readers of my blog at www.joangary.com ask me all the time. Uh, and it is not my specific area of expertise. So I decided it was time to offer folks an expert. And lo and behold, I found one in you. So first things first, I'm always really interested. How did you and your co-founder, Tiffany, um, find yourself in the integrated marketing business? And more specifically, how did you land in the nonprofit sector? Well, that's a good question, and my own particular trajectory was that right out of college, I moved to New York. I took a corporate job doing technical writing, which was incredibly dull, to be honest, <laughs> and not meaningful, and so I realized I wanted something better, so I was very fortunate to go to CARE, which is the International Relief and Development Organization, which yep. used to be based in New York City, and now, I started, pardon me? Oh, now it's in D.C., right? Now, well, it's actually in Atlanta now. Oh, interesting. <laughs> But I was lucky enough to start in their donor services department answering mail from donors. And so I learned about fundraising from basically from direct mail donors. And I learned how a development office works. And this was actually in the late 80s. So it was during the famine in Ethiopia. And it was a really tremendous moment in time because the American public was really, um, really wanted to help the people in Africa. And so CARE was one of the organizations that was really on the ground there. And so their direct marketing program really took off and it, it it grew tremendously as they raised, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year to help help the famine. That's awesome. So That's awesome. Was, so where did you yeah. go from there? Um, I went briefly to visiting nurse service in New York as an annual fund manager and then I got 
recruited by Kay Lotman to come to Lotman and Company, as it was known then. And I was so lucky because Kay is, sorry you never met her, um, she died in 2012. She was a, a guru. She was a legend in our industry, and she was a really phenomenal person. She was exceptionally creative, and she was very cutting edge because she, you know, she came of age in the 60s when you had to answer ads under Help Wanted Female in the New York Times. Right. And she learned, she learned fundraising, working with Harold Orham at the Orham Group, and she worked with groups like the World Wildlife Fund. And it was when a, a lot of nonprofits really took off. So um, Tiffany and I are very lucky that we came to Lotman, Lotman and Company as it was then, and then were able to buy the company from her in 2007. So, Well, it sounds like you stand on very broad shoulders. We do. Yeah. Um, and um, and uh, the business was all about nonprofit fundraising, correct? Yes, and, and it still is. Great. And so um, um, talk to me a little bit. Um, the, the word we used, the word I used earlier was integrated marketing. Um, now, <clears throat> most of my clients uh, would only dream of affording a marketing professional. I would guess that only organizations maybe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, only organizations of maybe 15 or $20 million or more could even entertain such an idea. But I think your phrase integrated marketing means something different or something more. So, so tease it out for me. What is integrated marketing? What do you mean when you talk about it? And what does that service look like that you provide for your clients? Well, it's really very simple. It's meeting donors and prospective donors where they are. And today, donors have the opportunity to be in the digital space in addition to in their mailbox. And so we are um, communicating with donors to the mail because many, many donors who are generally ages 60 and up, that's how they oftentimes will support an organization. But they're also, you know, they're online. They're, they're buying things online. They're emailing their grandchildren. They're on Facebook. They're still using AOL accounts and um, using Bing instead of Google. So we are making sure that all of our clients are have a, have a presence in the digital space. Um, we generally do, at, the, at its most basic, a digital integrated campaign is having emails that coincide with the mailings that we're sending out to help reinforce the message and also to offer donors the convenience of giving online if they choose to. But what every study has found is that a donor who is engaging with a nonprofit both through the mail and online is far more valuable than somebody who's doing either channel um, just singly. So it's really, really important to have both both channels represented, and to have the messages in sync. One of the services that we provide that's really important is to make sure that we have a communications calendar for each of the groups we work with so that all of the touch points with a donor are planned out and and really um, integrated and, and made sure that they're in sync so that it's not a disconnect. Because the donor, you know, they, they support the organization and they have a relationship with the organization, but they don't think of the organization as having different departments. A communications department sending out e-newsletters and a membership department sending out renewals and then an events department sending out invitations. They just know that they have a relationship with the group and they it makes sense for it to be integrated that way. Um, it's totally true. And then people can feel bombarded and then they just create a, if they know well enough, they create a folder and everything goes into that folder. And then every once in a while they just delete it. 
Right. They don't. Then they don't read anything. So I think it's all about making sure that the messages are timely and that they're what the donor's interested in. So there's lots of strategies to to help understand that, so that you know we're timing messages right, and also optimizing the number of messages so that they're not too many. So Lisa, maybe I'm a dunce here, but let me just make sure. Let me play something back that you said and make sure I. Um, that I didn't hear this incorrectly, is the demographic for integrated marketing in a nonprofit older? Is that what you were suggesting? Well, I was speaking of, when you think of the classic direct response donor, they really are, say, 55 years and up or 60 years and up. Now, the people who give strictly by mail are probably on the older end of that spectrum, but even... um, there aren't as many younger people giving. And I think one of the questions we most often hear from nonprofits is, you know, we're, our donors are really old yes. and we need to find younger donors. And it's a kind of a short answer, but the answer is to wait because a lot of times people in the younger demographics are busy raising families. They're, you know, they've got, they're distracted by the things that are going on in their lives and their their money is going towards college for their kids and they are not in a position to donate just yet. But generally by the time people hit, you know, their mid fifties or their sixties, that's when their, their attention can turn towards missions that they care about and they are far more likely to become a donor at that time, even if they didn't donate previously. Unless, of course, you're an you're an older parent and you hit that demographic and you have like two or three kids in college. <laughs> um, yes, I won't mention any names, but um, I uh, there are some college tuition bills that hit our desks every day. So, um, but it's it's interesting to me. Um, I think of direct mail and I think of sort of e appeals, which I guess is part of what you're sort of what you're talking about. Um, the folks, the folks who open their direct mail, are they the same people who open their um, who open their emails and make and make online donations? They probably essentially are. I mean, when you think about when we think about the sort of classic direct mail donor, it's somebody who's retired and actually has time to read their mail, and that's one of the reasons that a four-page letter still outperforms a two-page letter when we test for new donor acquisition packages for, you know, someone who hasn't supported an organization before. They really need the longer letter to make the stronger case for support. Um, That same person may actually be active online and might give online, but it's hard to know for sure. And so using both channels is the best way to make sure we're giving them every option because our goal is to make sure that they can contribute when and where they want to. so one of the biggest questions I get, and I, I'm going to guess you get it as well, is um, isn't direct mail essentially dead? Um, why should I even bother with a direct mail program? And doesn't it actually cost me more than I actually generate? Those are excellent questions, and we get them every day. And the truth is that direct mail, a direct response program, is an investment when you are just at the beginning stages, when you don't have any donors just yet. But direct response is really the most cost-effective way to build a broad base of support from mass market donors, from small sum donors. You know, I'm not talking about major gift people, um, but you know, the people who are going to give $50, $100, $250. The best way to recruit those supporters is by mailing an acquisition package to donors who donate to other organizations and to really make a strong case for support for your organization and attract those people to your cause. And while the initial 
mailing is usually a net investment. You know, you're paying to send out that mailing and get ideally 1% of the people to respond, you're going to make that money back over time as, as you get that second gift and then you turn that person into a multi-donor. Right. And I think that that's, that ends up being the catch really for newer organizations as they, I mean, right. What's the question, you know, fundraising consultants get asked all the time is I, I have a relatively new organization and I need prospects. I need right. donors. And, you know, they don't fall like manna from heaven. You've actually got to make, you know, in the same way you might have to make an investment in someone who can do, you know, um, individual giving asks. You, you also have to make a, an investment in building a list that it becomes one of your biggest assets, yes? That's exactly right. And Kay actually, Kay Lotman used to say that starting an acquisition program, starting a, a direct marketing program was like planting asparagus. It takes three years to see anything from it. And that's because initially, you know, you're plowing money into the, the investment of bringing those people on and starting to bond with them and get them to renew. But, but usually by year three, actually, this means it's closer to year four now, people, you'll start to see real net return. And that's when things take off and you really start to see your file grow. Right. And the, the challenge there is that that kind of timeline runs so anathema to the sort of the sense of urgency that nonprofits feel about their work. It's almost, I often compare nonprofits to startups, right? You need to, you need to see immediate results because there are, um, there are crises, there's a, a client to serve, there's a disease to end, there's, you know, whatever it might be. And so waiting isn't something that nonprofit folks are that good at. That is so, so true. And it's understandable. If you're taking money away from program in order to invest in fundraising, that's a really difficult thing to do. But we've seen a lot of organizations where they have great relationships with their board members, you know, talk and and, and, and help help them understand that if they make an, a special investment, um, sometimes boards will earmark money for this to really, you know, launch a program so that they can basically create a more self-sustaining model. I mean, it's, it's direct mail has direct mail, direct response, you know, it helps with awareness. Um, and it's really, it's really a, a great way to help establish credibility with the community, with other funders, to know that you have 5,000 people or 10,000 people that, you know, are supporting you every year with small gifts. It's a really powerful thing. Indeed. Um, so I, I assume the business has changed quite a lot since you um, first joined the firm and first put your toe in the waters down there at CARE. Um, uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about how the business has changed, What's what's been good about the changes, what's been challenging about them. Well, I think one of the challenging things is that it's gotten more expensive. Um, I think, you know, costs have gone up a lot and the market is so much more competitive. So for a new group to get started, it's just a much more, not only a more competitive mailbox, but the world is, is, is more full. People are getting messages in multitude of ways and different channels and it's a little bit, it's, it's kind of overwhelming. And so it's kind of hard to cut through the clutter. So, you know, you really have to be on point and on message and succinct and making sure that your communication strategy is out there so that you can really make the best case and, and if you're going to launch a campaign like this. Um, they also want to be perfectly frank, one challenge is the U.S. Postal Service right. that they've had so many troubles in there. You know, they've had 
basically they've contracted and their staff has, has contracted. And so their services are, are not what they used to be and delivery time is slower and they're not as reliable. I would, you know, I mean, our business depends upon it and I certainly don't mean to say anything critical about the U.S. Postal Service, but I'm sure they would be the first to admit that it's taking longer for nonprofit right now to get delivered. It does get delivered, um, but it's, it's, it's more of a challenge and that's one of the things we face as well. But I think that what's good about the way things have changed with having multi-channel approach and knowing that we can communicate with donors online as well has really been amazing because people, organizations can do things very quickly. Like one thing that we just did, um, one of our clients is the Human Rights Campaign and after the shooting in Orlando, mm-hmm. We, you know, they were able to, you know, they have a great, a great team in place and a great communications team, and we were able to work together. And they, you know, put out an online campaign where people could, and this is something that they did internally, but people could leave messages of support online. And I think they had fairly quickly 10,000 messages of support. And I think what's so powerful about that for me is that it's a way for the donor to engage with a cause that they care deeply about and to do it immediately. So, you know, there was such an outpouring after the the event, after the shooting, people really wanted to do something and that gave them a way to feel connected. And it actually, you know, helped them basically strengthen their their um, relationship with HRC as well. That's absolutely right. I mean, that's the, that for some that could have been their first step with HRC that right is in, and then you start them up the pyramid. It, you know, that's that, you know, that's the, the thought is you, is you introduce them to the organization and, and, giving them something to do at a time when everyone is just desperate to try to do something. Right. And, um, and, and you bring them in and the, and people are grateful for the opportunity and that starts to build, that starts to move beyond transaction to relationship. Absolutely. And that's one of the things, I mean, that's an online example of making that kind of gesture, but that's one thing that direct mail does as well. Like we often use, um, like basically we call them a sign and return card or sign and return involvement device. So it's something that the donor can do in addition to just making a gift. And it really does help connect the donor to whoever the beneficiary of their support is. And it's really powerful. Yeah. No. And and you know that because you sat and opened those letters once. Absolutely. Right. And saw the comments. I mean, GMHC, at GMHC, we used to, we still do actually send out a placemat for the Thanksgiving meal that they serve on site. And we would go down when, um, we would go down when we had the opportunity and look through the placemats and people would write the most amazing messages. And I found that so incredible because the donor knew that that placemat was actually going to accompany someone's meal and they wrote the most heartfelt things. It was really striking. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, I think that's what I'm hearing in what you're talking about here, Lisa, is that that there's nothing dead about any efforts to engage people with an organization. The The onus is on the organization working with, you know, if they're lucky enough to work with um, entities like yours, is to really think about how to do that in a creative fashion that really touches people and allows them to kind of feel like they're a part of that organization. I mean, I would write something on that placemat in a minute, knowing that somebody was going to sit down and read it. Like uh, I can actually touch and feel the work in a way that I couldn't just simply by, by writing a $20 check. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's, it's incredible the impact people can make 
one-to-one. Yep, absolutely. We are talking with Lisa Masca. She's the partner and co-founder of Lautman, Masca, and Neil, a leading integrated marketing firm specializing in work with nonprofit organizations. Um, Lisa, how does a nonprofit organization know it's ready to begin a direct mail campaign? That's a great question, and you have to be prepared for a number of things. You have to, basically, if I give you a couple of questions that an organization should ask itself. That'd be great. Does the organization provide a solution to a problem? It needs to be something that, you know, is is recognized as an issue and people can understand that you're providing that solution. For example, Meals on Wheels is a great solution to the problem of homebound seniors who are frail and need some additional help. So people people understand that that's a need and they can see how Meals, Meals on Wheels provides that solution. Also, does the organization have a demonstrable track record? Can they talk about the impact they've made and be able to tell a prospective donor, with your gift of $50, we're going to be able to provide, using that example, 10 meals for a homebound senior this month. Another really important thing is does the organization have broad name recognition or any name recognition because that can be a huge stumbling block. You know, I mentioned before how the marketplace is so crowded with messages and and things that if somebody's not familiar, it can be really hard to cut through the clutter. So the better the organization is at with its name and maybe using a tagline that helps illuminate what they do, that's going to help them stand out in the mail. Also, do they have a natural constituency? Are there people who, you know, segments of, of, of donors and segments of the population who might readily support the organization? That's something that a direct mail test can help help, okay. help um, uncover. So I heard, and, oh, go ahead, keep going. Well, and the last thing is, are they prepared to invest for several years? It usually takes three to four years to turn around and, and see net investment. And at that point, the program will take off, but you have to have the, the stomach to be able to invest for a couple of years, knowing that at the end of it, you're going to have built a donor file that's going to help sustain you in the future. Um, excellent. Those are, those are great. So what I heard, I'm going to play them back to you, and then, and then um, well, let's pick them apart just a minute. Um, what I heard was, is the organization solving a problem? Can the organization articulate impact in a demonstrable way? Is there some kind of already out there brand recognition to cut through the clutter? Is there a natural constituency? Mm -hmm. And do you have the money to invest for a couple of years? That's I believe that's what I heard. Okay, so, all right, riddle me this, Lisa. Are there nonprofits out there that are not attempting to solve problems? Not attempting to solve problems? In other well, words, I, so that when you, uh, so I was just trying, I was just trying to imagine them and maybe I'm, maybe I'm slow. I just got back from vacation, but um, um, are there nonprofits out there that are, are, that are not in the business of solving problems? Well, it may be a problem that donors are not aware of, or if you have to explain it in such a way that, let me let me just think how to say this. If some, if a direct mail letter can't necessarily teach somebody something, but it can help bring them along if it's something they're already aware of. So when I use the example of homebound seniors, people can understand that like a homebound senior can't get out to the grocery store and buy their own groceries perhaps, or maybe they have arthritis and it's difficult for them to prepare their own meals. So they need that additional help to get nutrition and a a hot meal and a friendly visit. And so Meals on Wheels helps with that. But for something that 
a donor perhaps is not aware of as an issue, it's going to be really hard for a direct mail package or an email to explain that that's a problem that they need to care about. It's not to say that it can't happen, but it's it's harder to bring somebody along that journey if it's something they're completely unfamiliar with. Um, okay, so do you have do you have an example you can pull out of your pocket? Well, one I'm thinking one example that comes to mind is a group that had contacted us, and I might be getting their name wrong, probably more than ten years ago. It was the National Headache Foundation, and it's just I'm sure that solving the issues of chronic headaches is a problem, and it's something that people need to pay attention to, but it's not something that I think the the general general public would say, yes, I actually need to help with that. That's something I care deeply about. So it's going to be hard to attract a broad base of support for something that's so specific. Um, Well, it's, it's not only that, it's more than it's just specific. It's also so pervasive. Like, like it's like, uh, the national, I mean, and, and I'm sure they do good work in raising awareness about the impact of headaches on the population, but who doesn't have a headache? I mean, I just took an Advil about an hour ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, it's not only is it so broad, it's also like, what could, and maybe no one can even imagine that there could be an end to headaches. Exactly. I mean, right. I mean, I hate to pick on that organization because I really don't know that much about them. No, and 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 we're not picking on them. I think we're just diagnosing here um, that that. I mean, my goodness, um, you know, raising awareness about the impact that headaches have on job performance and, you know, attendance at work and all those kinds of things. I bet it's really, really significant. But I just but I do. So I get. okay. so that helps me understand these the problem solving thing. Um, and I think, you know, um, if there's, if there's one thing that nonprofit organizations, I believe have to get better at, it is articulating their, what they do, why it's important and examples of impact that people can really latch onto. It's just not a strong suit for nonprofits. And it's critical for their survival because they're all about, that's what they're about. Right, exactly. And um, the way I always describe it is, is if you ask me about one of my kids, I'll talk forever about them unless, and because, because I'm so passionate about them and that, that, that nonprofits suffer from that same um, syndrome where they want to tell you absolutely everything because they believe so deeply, but they forget that they have to cut to the chase. That is exactly right, because too much information can just get in the way of somebody really understanding what what their role can be and what an impact they can make exactly. through their support. Exactly. Um, a couple of uh, a couple of quick questions. Um, does does integrated marketing always involve list rental and um, kind of quickly the pros and cons of list rental? And and if I'm going to rent a list, um, what should I be looking for? That's a great question, because the best way to grow your donor file is through outside lists. And we usually start for organizations with renting or exchanging lists of donors to other like other similar organizations. That's the best place to start because you're going to get people that are the most likely to be interested in your cause. Um, we don't typically go with larger commercial lists because that's just, that's a little farther afield. We're looking for people who have demonstrated 
that they read their mail, that they're likely to respond to it, and best of all, that they've actually contributed to another nonprofit through the mail, because that means that they're most likely to, to give to your organization. One thing that's actually happened in the last five years is the advent of um, a whole new set of companies that model data and help provide you with lists of people who are modeled to be like the donors that you already have. Yep. And that's been a tremendous source of new prospective donors. Um, it's been a great way for people to grow their lists. Is, um, uh, uh, is, are we looking just for lists of uh, uh, names and addresses or is this also, can you also forgive me? I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I don't know this. Uh, do you get email addresses as well? You know, that's something people have really been trying to do because it seems great, doesn't it? Like you could just not mail and you could send out an email, which would be way cheaper. And right. if you could get the person to give, how great would that be? Unfortunately, it hasn't really worked that way. It's really hard. You you can try it, and lots of nonprofits have been doing it. They've been trying, but almost everybody has found that that's a really difficult way to actually get somebody to give. What's been more successful is to find the names of people who are willing to take an action on your behalf online. There's groups like change.org and care too, yep. where you can do a campaign to basically, you know, the, the goal is to get say 5,000 people or 10,000 people who are willing to sign a petition on your behalf. Then you get the name of that person and you're able to sort of try to convert them. It's, that can be, that's, that's successful for some groups and mostly for advocacy organizations. Mm -hmm. It can be a little tougher for social service type organizations, but that's been something people have been trying to do. Then there's also new things like um, retargeting online, digital retargeting, but that's pretty expensive and fairly technical and not something that most nonprofits are doing. Interesting. Um, common, a couple of common mistakes you see? Well, one of the things I think you mean when somebody has an existing direct marketing yeah. program. What, yeah. What are the common mistakes? What do you, what, you, say, you look at them and you go, oh, you're doing this, this, and this. These are very common. Don't do those. Too often, organizations think that they're bothering donors by mailing them, and that is simply not the case. These people have given to you through the mail or, or online because they care about your organization. And so to then think, well, I don't want to bother them, it really does them a disservice because that's the way that they've actually engaged with you in the past. It's the way they learn more about you, and it's the way that they're going to understand the impact of their gifts in the future through your communications with them. So the biggest mistakes we see are people not mailing often enough, mailing, you know, thinking, well, they only give it year-end, so I'm just going to mail them at year-end. Right. But if you only mail them at year-end, you're missing out on those other 11 months when, first of all, they're getting mail from other organizations. So you should really be out there, too. But they're not hearing from you. And so then, essentially, you're only communicating with them when you want something instead of being able to report back and steward them and cultivate them throughout the year by showing them the impact of their work day in and day out throughout the year. Um, the other thing is oftentimes when we see nonprofit organizations, when they write their own letters, they don't make a strong enough ask in the letter. It's very tentative and it's sort of pitched as, well, we would hope you would consider us during your year-end giving this year. There's, you should not be apologetic for asking for money. Your organization is amazing and wonderful and these donors want to support you. So you absolutely should make a very strong ask and, and do it without flinching and without apology. One of the things that I remember um, uh, sort of bristling at is, uh, and I don't know if this is still the case, I might be dating myself, but um, <clears throat> the voice of direct mail when I ran a gay rights organization was very um, 
different from the voice that I used when I would talk with a prospective donor. There was a sense of uh, urgency, almost, you know, sort of frightening. There would be something on the outside cover that would, that, 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 that it had such a different kind of voice to it that it felt dissonant for me from the, the, from the organization's voice. And I wonder, is that just sort of part of the territory of direct mail that you actually sort of have to take a, a different, more urgent, sometimes, you know, sort of frightening tone, depending again on the, uh, on the organization in order to increase your open rates? I think what you're alluding to is heightened emotion, which we definitely <laughs> want to use. Yes. And in the case of an advocacy organization, you always want to have an enemy. And yes. so you're going to do the best fundraising when you've got an enemy and there's this urgent case for support and you need to let people know right away what's at stake and why they need to give today. That's not true for a group that's, say, a social service organization. Right. But one thing that is true is that the voice in most sort of direct response donor communications, the tone should be very conversational. Letters should be written as if you're writing to your Aunt Edith, you know, written one person to one person, um, not institutional. They should, you know, it should really be at like the eighth grade reading level, which I have seen phenomenally effective letters, but that are written with the most simple language. Mm -hmm. That's far more effective than when people use sort of a higher institutional cerebral tone. Often that's another mistake we see often is that people want, they want their mail to sound smart and yes. like their organization really knows what they're talking about. And that's perfect for a foundation proposal, but for direct response, you want it to be conversational, you want it to be easy to read, and you want it to really be engaging. And heightened emotion and examples and clear, you know, clear writing is the most effective way to do that. Yeah, it's just... As somebody who ran an organization for a while, you know, I would work, I, I would always read these direct mail pieces and say, but this doesn't sound like our voice. And I, I would, I would actually have to defer to my staff, which I tried to do um, with, you know, you hire good people and you let them do good work. Right. Um, I have one, I guess one last question and then we've got to wrap um, maybe using the HRC example, uh, might be a good one, but I had we talked about the idea of you know a successful campaign that you worked for, perhaps an organization that isn't uh, well. HRC is quite a huge organization, but just a, 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 just a quick example of something you did that that reflects sort of best practices, maybe a little bit of creativity that we can leave our listeners with. Sure, and actually, I'll, I'll, I've got an example that comes from that same market, the LGBT market. Um, we launched a campaign for the Point Foundation, yes. and I'm not sure most people are, they are not necessarily an organization that most people know, but they provide scholarships for LGBTQ students in need, and it's something that they're unique in doing that. There's no other organization doing that, and they came to us and wanted to launch a direct response program, and we were you know, a little concerned because their name is not familiar, yeah. but but we wrote an amazing letter for them and launched a package to lists from the LGBT community, and it did gangbusters. So they started in the mail a little less than five years ago. They had a, they probably had 2,000 donors of their own. Today, they actually have, I think they have about 6,000 donors, and their program is netting money. And the, 
way we did that, in addition to the, the letter that really made a strong case for support and explained who they were, we used a sign and return card and that the donor was invited to sign and send back with their gift, and it was going to go to one of the scholars, and it was, it was when they were being alerted that they were getting one of the scholarships. And it was just a message of support, and it was like, we believe in you, we're here for you. Right. And it was phenomenally successful. And we've... You know, we've built their campaign up, and they've had lots of upgrades within the file. They've had planned gift inquiries, and it's exactly what you want to see happening. You're bringing in the space of support and then really able to, you know, engage. The staff can engage with the donors, and they raise their hands and show when they're interested in supporting at a higher level. Once again, you have uh, used an example where you give the donor the opportunity to sort of reach out and touch the work, which seems exactly. like it, it just seems like it's pretty mission critical for your work. Absolutely, and it makes a program that's so much better. I mean, it's rewarding for the donor, and it's also great for the, the organization because one thing that Point told us was that when they started sending those cards to the students, they actually had better compliance from the students with staying in touch, and which is something they're supposed to do as part of their scholarship. Yes, status. So they they felt a greater sense, they had felt a greater sense of accountability, didn't they? Exactly. And they also felt support. And so they were, the staff were actually thrilled because this really made a difference for the scholars. So it was a win all around. So I am, um, I'm so pleased that, um, that so many of my readers and listeners reached out on this particular topic of direct mail, direct response, integrated marketing, and that, um, I, I, identified an expert and I identified just the right expert. Um, Lisa, Lisa Maska from uh, Lautman uh, Maska and Neal, a leading integrated marketing firm specializing in work with the nonprofit organizations. Um, It sounds like you are um, adding such value to the organizations that you work with them and you have just added a lot of value to the folks who've listened today. So thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. So, um, If you enjoyed this podcast, um, take a couple of minutes and leave us a rating or a review. Again, this is not uh, some kind of selfish move on my part, but rather an altruistic one in that uh, the more ratings and reviews we get, uh, the more prominently the podcast is displayed and therefore the more people will have the opportunity to... um, benefit from Lisa's really um, great thoughts and insights today. So um, until next time, this is Joan Gary. Again, you can find me at www.joangary.com. And thanks so much for joining us. Nonprofits are messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.